Thank you very much. It is nice to be with you folks again. I'm afraid you're as good-looking as ever, so glad to, glad to be back with you. Can I mention that I also have a, a guest that I uh, attracted to come with me here this morning? This is my son, Micah. He is our youngest son, um, and he was very interested in the possibility of getting a uh, a lunch out instead of eating at home. So uh, that's the reason That's the reason that he's here <laughs> in any case. Um, could I ask you please to pray with me as we begin? Yeah, let's pray together. For you are good. For you are good. For you are good to me. And to us all, your goodness shines over us like the sky. And so we give you thanks. Will you open our hearts to hear your word, to hear the source of that goodness, even today in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. Um, Friends, when I got married, I discovered that my wife was not quite the person that I thought she was. We were friends for a long time before we got married. Um, and she was a good friend and we connected well and all sorts of great things were going on. And then uh, we got married. And one of the things I discovered was that she called her mother every day. She was uh, a thousand miles from home. Uh, from her home, and uh, as I was, I talked to my family about once every six months, probably. It was terrible. Terror. I was a terrible son. She was a great daughter. She talked to her mother every day. So there was something about being connected to Heidi that meant I was connected to her family in a way that I did not really expect. Uh, Frequently folks say, you know, you, you never, when you get married, you don't just marry your spouse, you marry your in-laws, right? It's all kind of part of the bargain. All right. That's a little terrifying sometimes. Um, But it does serve as a kind of helpful reminder for me, as I am thinking about the disciples entering into a relationship of obedience and friendship and life with Jesus. Because it does seem to me that Jesus' disciples may have felt as though they got a whole family instead of just the guy they thought they were entering into a relationship with. Jesus had relations that they weren't really very familiar with. All right. Our task for today is to investigate Jesus and his relations. I am thinking especially about, uh, I mean, our focal point today is the, the, uh, unusual friend that is this Jesus, whom as I get to know, it turns out that he has family. I'm interested in talking today about, and next week too, I expect, uh, about the doctrine of the Trinity, about the Trinity. Now, um, let me say that it, it takes a little bit of chutzpah 
to come to Trinity Christian Reformed Church and say, I'm going to talk to you about the Trinity. <laughs> um, so I, I'm not, I don't want to take that in the wrong direction. I really do want to think with you about the Trinity, not so much as a theological conclusion, especially not a theological conclusion that the New Testament writers were not especially aware of. You know how sometimes the doctrine of the Trinity seems that way? Sometimes the doctrine of the Trinity sounds like um, a complicated thing that that uh, is not exactly in the Bible. Where do you find the word Trinity in the Bible? Oh, yeah, it's not there. That's right. Um, well, so it's a doctrine that at least comes from the Bible, and surely the early Christians knew it, right? I mean, they must have had a doctrine of the Trinity by the time Jesus was leaving them, didn't they? No, actually, that was about 400 years later that the doctrine of the Trinity is kind of kind of formalized. So sometimes you get the impression that when you're thinking about the Trinity, you're thinking about something where... Um, clever and probably slightly egg-headed individuals pull together some ordinary things in Scripture and they come up with a doctrine that can sort of twist our minds, but it keeps theology professors employed at least. You might think. All right. What, what I hope that we will do today is to see something more than that going on. So I would like us today, here's my aim, right? In a certain sense, I don't want to talk very much about the doctrine of the Trinity. We may encounter it a little bit as we go. But I am hoping much more that we will see the Trinity in the New Testament. That we'll see it, I hope, in a certain way, um, in a fashion, you might say, not unlike the way the disciples encountered it when they met this new friend and found that they didn't just get their friend. They got instead their friend's father, and they got their friend's spirit in ways that they never would have guessed. Get the idea? Okay. That's sort of, uh, sort of, sort of where we're headed. So, um, it is interesting, I think, that you find the Trinity, not the doctrine of the Trinity, but the Trinity itself you find on just about every page of the New Testament. And I hope that we can unpack that, um, a little bit today. Let me tell you what I'm going to invite us to do. Uh, I have got, Three quick little biblical texts from the Gospels that I'm going to ask us to take a peek at. We're going to do it really quickly because each one of them just sort of takes a little step into this idea of Trinitarian life as the disciples encountered it. Just little steps. And then there is one primary text that we will focus our attention on. I will say it'll be helpful for us, I imagine, if you've got a Bible, if we can look at these texts together. In particular, uh, the last one. The first ones are a little bit shorter, and so we may zoom right in. I should also tell you, you may be surprised by this, I should also tell you that I don't expect to say anything at all about probably the single most important text in Christian history if you're thinking about the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine now, right? That text would probably be from Matthew 28, 
This is the great commission text. You remember after Jesus is raised from the dead and he uh, tells his disciples just before he ascends into heaven, he says, do you remember? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, say it with me, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Okay, we're not going to talk about that, though it's a crucial text. It's really the the place where Christians get Jesus's instruction for a baptismal formula. That is, how do you baptize children? How do you welcome people in? And it's an explicitly Trinitarian formula. Isn't it interesting that this is the last words, virtually, that we get from Jesus before he leaves town? And not much instruction about the Trinity prior to that. We sort of get the names. We're told, make sure you do everything in this. The question is, is that all there is? (laughs) You see? So Jesus doesn't instruct us much there. I think he does give the disciples a taste of a reality long before we get to the end. So that's what we want to look at. Three quick texts and then one that we'll spend uh, a little bit more more time on. Um, Especially, it may be worth noting, um, I'm not trying to prove to you that the Bible contains the Trinity or that the Trinity is a biblical doctrine or anything like that. You know, you come to a place called Trinity, CRC, you don't feel like you need to prove that. Um, but remember, the aim is not to prove a doctrine. It is instead to ask, what is it like to meet the Trinity in the way that the apostles did? Okay. Um, three quick texts. These first three will make most sense if you remember an old saying that maybe you've encountered at some point. Um, I, I can't remember where it originates, though I've seen a reference to it someplace. Um, sometimes it is said that you don't so much hear the doctrine of the Trinity in the New Testament as you overhear it. The Trinity is not heard, it is overheard. The idea is, it doesn't seem as though, especially in the gospel ministry of Jesus, but really it's true for the whole New Testament, there's not a lot of teaching about the Trinity. Not a lot there. What you find instead is references to the Trinity, without that word, of course, in there, but references that are not, they're sort of in passing. Something else is being talked about, and then we find that there's some reference to Jesus and his Father, or to the Spirit coming, or to things like that going on, that you wouldn't, that you wouldn't especially understand. You can sort of imagine the disciples meeting Jesus and then hearing him always talking about his father without giving much background, without explaining really what's going on there. It's the sort of thing that happens. So these three texts we're going to look at, all of them are cases where um, we find Jesus not even talking to his followers about Trinity, but still we get references to it when the persons of the Trinity are talking to one another and we get to listen in. He's not even talking to us. We get a glimpse of it. Can I take us to three quick texts like that? The first one is uh, at the beginning of Mark's gospel. Oops. The beginning of Mark. Uh, Very first chapter. We're going to come to this uh, 
for this text here. We'll get to it here soon. That's the one we're going to spend more time on. Um, uh, I know it's in here someplace. I've seen it. All right, here we go. Um, Mark chapter 1. This is a very familiar text, right? You'll recognize the scene and so forth, right? Um, Mark 1, and we're beginning at uh, verse 9. And here we read in the Gospel of Mark. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Do you remember this scene? And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Okay, now I'm not going to do an awful lot to unpack that. Do you notice in this first serious encounter, first event in Jesus's experience in Mark's gospel, Do you notice what happens? We listen in on a little, what shall we call it? A very brief conversation between the father and the son. As the father says to Jesus, right, he's not talking to you. He's not talking to me. He's not talking to the disciples in this case, right? Instead, he's talking to the son. And what he says is, as we see there in verse 11, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Of course, we're not shocked by that. We've heard it a thousand times. What do you think that was like for the disciples? It certainly is true that they already, I take it, uh, at least some people had seen significance in Jesus, power, life, truth. They'd seen some of those things already. Jesus is getting ready to start calling his disciples. But here now, we see that already, before anything is really going on in the gospel story, we have the Father loving the Son and being pleased with him in every way. Do you hear a kind of intimacy in that? Do you see the relationship that's going on between Jesus and his father. Jesus was always the subject of his father's love and the one who gave his father pleasure in a distinctive way. I don't know of anybody else that God speaks to in quite this way. That's because, of course, we don't know anybody else that is who Jesus is, right? You get the idea. We've listened in and we find There's something interesting going on between this father and this son. And if you're going to get to know the son, the father is going to be part of the bargain. Second quick text. Um, Another place you can see this. I actually put my finger in this one already so I can get there. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. And I'm especially interested in verses 25 and following. Next couple of verses. Again, familiar texts. You'll recognize these. Jesus has been doing some teaching of different kinds and especially talking about some folks that had not responded positively to his message. They didn't seem able to see it. And here's what what comes next then. Um, Verse 25, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. 
Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, you hear that closing word, right? Uh, it, it goes on a little further, too, right? Jesus's yoke is easy. His burden light. Come to me, he says. All right, that's spoken now to all of us, to Jesus's disciples. But what we're really interested in is the conversation that went on before he was talking to us. The thing that makes us want to come to him is precisely that the Father has given over everything to the Son, and no one even knows the Son except the Father, and no one will know the Father except the Son. Again, can we see that there is something about this relationship between the Father and the Son that is not just a good man who is glad to know that God loves him in a fatherly way? There's something much more than that here. And I imagine the disciples listening in and saying, wait a minute, he's not just talking about God being like a father to us. Jews did that a lot. God is like a father to Israel. This is language you find in the Old Testament. He's talking as though God is his father, and not just his individual father, but like there's this singular relationship. Father, and he's the son And no one will know the Son except the Father. No one will know the Father except the Son. You get the idea? I imagine the disciples saying, so what's going on in that family? Nobody is like them. There's something exclusive about this Father, Son. At various points, we get the Spirit in there too. About this relationship, something quite surprising. One more text, one more text. This one over in John's gospel, uh, it's John 17. Again, I imagine it's a text that we will be familiar with. This is toward the end of Jesus's life. And what he does is uh, to uh, lead the disciples in a long prayer, right? It's a chapter long prayer. Do you remember this in John 17? Jesus has been teaching them, telling them all sorts of things. And then at the beginning of John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, can you hear the disciples listening in? It's happening again. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Did you hear that conversation between these two? The Father glorifies the Son, the Son glorifies the Father, and somehow all of that was going on before the Big Bang. This is larger than the world. 
we have a father and a son bound together in the unity of the spirit. If you get the son, you get the father and the spirit in the bargain. Can you hear the Trinitarian life that is directly connected to Jesus? To follow Jesus is to meet the Trinity. It turns out that he's that kind of friend. He's a friend that has a family. The disciples meet him in that way. All right, last text. And this one we'll, uh, we'll put up here so that we can watch it. But it comes from John, uh, uh, John 5. Um, this is a passage, the one we're going to look at here, John 5, 19, as you see, right? Um, this is a passage that actually uh, Augustine of Hippo, the well-known church father that, whose name some of you might recognize, very influential for Christian understandings of the character of salvation and of God's nature and of God's triune nature, that sort of thing. Very influential from way back in the fifth century. And Augustine liked to look at the gospel stories. And he said, I wonder whether you'd recognize this. It's a little surprising, I think. Jesus always said, it seems as though when you go to the Gospels, there are three different things that you find are true about Jesus. Three different things. In the first place, he said, there are lots of texts you can go to where you can recognize the deity of Christ. You know what that means, right? Uh, verses like when Jesus says later in John's Gospel, I and the Father are one. You know the idea. All right, when I'm dealing with Jesus, I'm dealing with God. Great. Augustine says, secondly, it's also very clear uh, in the New Testament that when you're talking about Jesus, you ought to be thinking about the humanity of Christ. Yeah. This is like when Jesus says again, uh, when Jesus says something like the father is greater than I. All right. We get that. Jesus is divine. Jesus is human. Augustine says there's one other thing that you get. And he always especially went to this text to remind us of this. He said, the other thing that you get is there are texts that don't exactly talk about Jesus in, uh, in his deity. They don't exactly talk about Jesus merely as a man. They talk instead about what Augustine called the fromness of Jesus. Or sometimes that's translated into English, the ofness of Jesus. He is always the son who is from the father. Can you see what I mean when I say that's not exactly deity? I mean, it is because the son is God himself. But what does it mean to say that God is from God? You see what I mean? And it's not exactly humanity. I mean, it's clear that Jesus and that all things, including human beings, come from God. And so Jesus is from God. But that's not exactly what it's talking about. Instead, the relationship between the Father and the Son is one that always moves in a direction. Jesus understood himself not just to be God, not just to be a man, but to be from his Father in all things. Watch for that in this text. We're just going to read through it. I'll comment a little bit as we go down. It's, but it's pretty straightforward, I think, as you, as you start to look at it. 
So here, let's uh, look at this together. Um, uh, this is in a context in which Jesus has done a healing, and as sometimes happens, it's on the Sabbath day when the healing takes place. And so actually, just a little bit before this, uh, I had given you folks the wrong verse. Sorry about that For as you put the slides up there. Um, just before this, we've got Jesus doing this healing, and it gets word gets to the Pharisees, and we're told back in verse 15, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things, healing and so forth, on the Sabbath. Now listen. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Do you hear the parallelism there? My father is doing this, I am doing it. What the father does, the son does. There's a sort of linkage. The fact that the father's doing means that the son is doing. Hmm. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he healing on the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Do you hear that relationship? This continues then. So let's go on here now. So the Pharisees are accusing him of doing things he shouldn't be doing, of saying things he shouldn't be saying. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Do you notice again that parallelism? Do you notice how when Jesus thinks about who he is and what he does, he thinks about what the father is and what the father does and the son does what the father does. Jesus is from his father. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Let's go on. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Can we pause on that sentence for a minute? Look at that. Do you remember everything that Jesus says, everything I see from the Father, that's what I do. And you might think, oh, okay, so that means that when Jesus sees that the Father is compassionate, and so he says, okay, so I'm going to exercise compassion. Listen, we all ought to do that. But that's not the sort of thing Jesus is talking about. What Jesus sees the Father doing is raising the dead. And therefore, Jesus raises the dead because he says, I always do everything that my father is doing. When the father creates a world, it turns out that the son is there creating the world. When the father works redemption, it turns out that the son is the means by which redemption is worked. You see the idea? Everything that the father does, the son does also. Isn't it interesting, in fact, here in this the top line there, right? The father raises the dead and gives them life. So also the son gives life to whom he will. Do you notice? It's the son's choice in this case. It's up to the son whom he will give life to. Though, of course, the father is also giving life. Something strange is going on in this family, you see? It's hard for us to figure out. Let's go on. For the father judges no one, but has given, whoops, not quite there yet. Thanks. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. 
that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So when you're dealing with the Son, are you dealing with God? Very clearly, Jesus says yes. The Son should be honored in the same way that the Father is honored. But the Son is honored that way because he is from the Father. You see that? In some way, there's more going on than just deity in Jesus, more than just humanity. There is this relationship to Father and to Spirit as well, though we're not focusing on that, that we always recognize when we're watching Jesus at work. So finally, Jesus can say, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. We have God sending God, and if you get one piece of God, you get the whole ball game. You get it whether you've got a doctrine of the Trinity in place or not. Do you notice? There is no doctrine of Trinity here, and the disciples may very well have been scratching their heads. But the reality of the Trinity is right there standing in front of them, right? Let's go ahead a little more. We're almost done with this uh, with this text we want to look at. Here we go. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Do you remember how he's talked all along about how his father is the one that gives him all these things, but now it is his word that is eternal life, Right? Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of God. Well, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. But of course, everything that the Son does is stuff that he's already heard and seen his Father doing. See that connection again? So it's the voice of the Son of God that will allow those who hear to live. One more time. Can we go to the next slide? There we go. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. I am especially interested here in the first sentence on this slide. Do you notice what's going on here? Something puzzling. If we stopped at the comma in the first line, if we said, as the father has, if we said the father has life in himself, we would be saying something, I think, that we all can understand. And it would be an important thing to say if you believe that there really is a God out there. Okay. That is to say, the father, God, has life in himself. Notice that doesn't just mean the father is alive. It doesn't just mean that he has life. It means instead that the father has life in himself. He himself is the source of the life that he has. I think you get the idea if you were to say the Father has capital L life in himself. That's the reason the Father with life in himself can make other things alive because he has life in himself. See the idea? All right, now watch. The Father has life in himself. Yes, makes all the sense in the world. So he had granted the Son also to have life in himself. All right, now wait a minute. If we left off the last two words, again, this would make good sense. We would say, ah, the father has life in himself. He's the source of life. And he has granted the son to have life. 
Oh, great. So the father makes the son to be alive. Except that's not exactly what it says. It says instead that the son also is the source of life. He has life in himself. That same capital L business going on there. Can you see that? But what does it mean then that the son has life in himself because he gets it from the father? Doesn't that mean the source is the father? And that would mean that the son doesn't have it in himself. He has it in his father. Listen, can you see some of the puzzles that took 400 years for Christians to work out if we're going to put this in a doctrine? Okay. The aim here is pretty clearly not to clarify a doctrine for us. (laughs) It's instead to introduce us to a life, to lives, maybe to capital L life, that is at a whole different place from anything that you or I or the apostles that were hearing all of this, from anything that we've encountered. Here, something unusual is going on. When you meet Jesus, it turns out that there is more at work than you would have guessed, and it's a Trinitarian reality. All right, we may come back to something else in that text in a second, um, but perhaps, perhaps not. Let's, let's say this. I don't want to go on, uh, go on too long on this. It seems to me that you, you might say this, right? There are all sorts of things that we could explore, right? All sorts of details here, all sorts of questions that prompted Christians as they reflected doctrinally. How can we make all this work? How should we understand God? How can the Father be God and the Son be God and the Spirit be God? And yet the Father is different from the Son and the Son is different from the Spirit and the Spirit is different from the Father. And yet there's only one God. All right, how do we work all that out? And Christians said in the original languages, That's sort of what they said. They said, this is mind-boggling. But here's the thing. They had learned from Jesus to live into this reality before it was a doctrine at all. The doctrine's an important thing. has been for Christians for a long time. But the disciples didn't learn a teaching They certainly didn't learn it from a textbook, right? They met Jesus and his father in the power of the spirit. That's not a doctrine. That's the Trinity. There's something about that that is life-changing. And Christians, of course, have been talking about it ever since. They talk about it because Jesus talked about it. Just about every page in the Gospels. Try this sometime. Somebody challenged me to do this once. I think it really works. Um, just about, if you just take your Bible, if you use actually a hard copy of a Bible, if you've got a phone, this won't work. But um, if you take your Bible and pick out the pages and hold them together, the pages in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then at random, open that little section so that your eyes are falling on one page in the Gospels. Nine times out of ten, you will be on a page that if you look at it, you will find Jesus talking about his Father or talking about the Spirit. Nine times out of ten. You can't get Jesus without getting a Jesus whose every moment is defined by this 
eternal reality of his relationship with his father. The reality that's older than the universe, deeper and stronger in some way than than the universe. So here's the thing, right? (laughs) Um, If that is the Jesus that we are invited to know, I'm not sure the doctrine of the Trinity needs to be something that terrifies us. It certainly is not something that ought to be something uh, that, that, that ought to kind of cause mind games to start as though we're trying to solve an intellectual puzzle. Friends, the relationship between the Father and the Son bound together in the unity of the Spirit, out of which creation itself springs. This reality is life. It is salvation. Eternal life, do you remember, is, Jesus said in John 17, is knowing you, he said in prayer, knowing you, Father, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It all is together there. Trinitarian life is what God offers us in Christ. You might say that that strange or unusual family relationship that you get with the Father and the Son bound together in the Spirit That's exactly the life that you and I are invited to enter into, right? This is what salvation is all about. The life of God is father and son in spirit. And you are invited then, not merely, not merely, to be saved, to avoid damnation. Listen, that's huge. Of of course, thanks be to God, he has rescued us from our sin and so forth. But it's more than that. In a way, I think the message that I want to harp on is not just that God loves you enough to save you. In some way, the gospel is one that invites us to be in love. Think about that phrase. To be in love. I don't mean by this, of course, course, a kind of um, adolescent infatuation. Maybe everybody knows what it is to be in love. I'm giddy. I can't think straight. I feel tingly, right? There are all sorts of things that in love sort of signals, sometimes pretty wacky things in our culture. All right. That's not exactly what we're after. But even that experience, even though it's a thousand miles downstream from, from, uh, from kind of real love, even that kind of diluted and polluted and distorted in the ways that it is. Even that is intoxicating, right? You remember what it's like when you're in love? What would it be like to drink that stream, not diluted way downstream? What would it be like to drink from it at the source when we live in the Father and the Son 
who shared glory and love and joy and power and life from before the foundation of the world. I think that's what the gospel offers us. Enter into Christ. Enter into life. We will find it to be more than we might have guessed, I think. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, our God, in Jesus' name. In the name of Jesus, who is the Son of the Father. In the name of Jesus, the Son of the Father, who sends forth the Spirit so that we also can be sons of God. In the name of the Son, who makes us to be sons, will you bear us into your life and be pleased with the results? We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.